0: The thing that is clearest to see is that what was feared and what was warned is no longer a topic for debate, it is here to face what this new reality brings. We need leaders to match this moment.
1: We just need more actors on the ground to just step up and say we'll do this and we're daring enough to actually foster the change that we want to see. We want this done
2: now. Our house is
1: still on fire. Hello and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today, we present a special preview episode on the theme of taking action all in honor of next week's virtual event davos agenda week subscribe to meet the leader on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you get your favorite podcasts to see and hear all of our coverage of davos agenda week starting next monday go online to wef.ch davos agenda i'm linda lasina and this is meet the leader the change we want to shape is not going to happen just because we're raising these issues but it's going to happen when we imagine the change and then ask ourselves what can we do about it I kick this episode off with voices from last year's World Economic Forum annual meeting artist Lynette Walworth, social activist Natasha Mwanza, and environmental activist Greta Thunberg. All three stressed a key theme, the importance of taking action. One that is all the more important at this year's Davos Agenda Week. This event, held at the end of January, sets the stage for the next annual meeting, one that will be held in Singapore in May for the first time due to the coronavirus. Like the annual meeting, Davos Agenda Week brings together a range of leaders in business, government and civil society to discuss how to tackle the world's biggest problems and what changes we must make to how we work and live to make progress on those issues. Much research is released at Davos Agenda Week, and today's guest, Dame Polly Curtis, contributed to the report, The Future of the Corporation, on the unique role that corporate boards can play in closing sustainability gaps. Polly is the Founder-Director of the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, an internationally renowned center that has worked for decades with the leaders of companies and
2: financial institutions to stress the idea that what's good for the planet is good for business. 50% You know, 50% of GDP is dependent on nature and you know they've calculated that $44 trillion of economic value generation is dependent on nature. So if you look at the destruction of soil health and loss of pollinators, we're putting significant parts of our economy at, at risk. She'll talk about why
1: business survival depends on taking action on sustainability, what holds leaders back, and why she's optimistic for the future. She'll even share a key lesson in determination that she learned from His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales. But first, she'll give us the lay of the land—the range of challenges that are facing leaders, many which have grown more complicated over the last 12 months.
2: Well, well, I suppose I would probably group them into sort of three areas. One of them clearly relates to the environment. This growing body of evidence about the effects of climate change, <clears throat> but also about the destruction of uh, natural ecosystems, the human health impacts of these in, of this environmental degradation, like pollution, but also um, a really much better understanding of the importance of nature to human well-being. The second area I would look at would be this, this much stronger social response to inequality and injustice, which of course is showing up in widespread and unrest and protests like Black Lives Matter, just to name a few, and all of which has been massively amplified by social media. The third area I think I would look at is a really interesting and growing understanding of the power of technology from AI and big data. And, of course, the pandemic, which is, um, has really kind of laid bare the, the fractures and the frailties of our systems. Um, and some of the consequences of our, I suppose, of the global interconnectedness that we have so valued in so many ways, but have so often discounted in terms of uh, the extent to which it will test our resilience. This past year,
1: leaders have needed to be so reactive, given the sheer number of crises, environmental, social, health, economic. Of these challenges, are there any in
2: your mind that have actually gone ignored or underappreciated? Well, actually, rather worryingly, I think that we have underappreciated all of those things. (laughs) We're perhaps slightly better at understanding the power of technology. I think that we're only just beginning to wake up to the economic consequences of climate change. I mean, the truth is we've been talking about the need to take action on climate change for decades. But I think that uh, what we have certainly underestimated is the state of the natural world. I think when we look at the data, the succession of reports that have come out during the past year, it is truly shocking what they are revealing to us in for example that population sizes of mammals, birds, fish, reptiles and amphibians have fallen by sixty-eight percent since nineteen seventy. Sixty-eight percent since nineteen seventy. And we know that, you know, there are a million species threatened with extinction over the next hundred years. Uh, you, you wouldn't normally see a loss on this scale over millions of years in the natural world. But what's really interesting to me is that our economic models have underestimated the dependence of our economy on the natural world. You know, 50% of GDP is dependent on nature, and you know they've calculated that 44 trillion dollars of economic value generation is dependent on nature. Perfect example is the loss of pollinators—a billion is at risk annually from the loss of pollinators like bees. So it's hardly surprising that the World Economic Forum Global Risks Survey puts biodiversity loss as the third most impactful risk facing the global economy. So when you talk about what we have underappreciated, uh, there are some big numbers there and some big consequences. The pandemic has helped shine a light on these crises, but what happens if we don't act? What happens if we miss this moment? Well, I suppose before I get too apocalyptic, it's really important to say that there is an opportunity and a growing realisation, I think, amongst many, many people that we can and must build an economy that really addresses some of these issues that I've talked about, that protects and restores nature, that creates long-term social and environmental value. And, of course, the truth is if we miss this moment, If we slip back to normal, if we get back to business as usual, then we will see an escalation of those existential threats, the consequences of which are really terrifying to contemplate. As David Attenborough has said, what we do in the next few years will determine the future of generations and generations of people to come. So this isn't just sorting out another global crisis. This is an existential crisis. And we have to address... The system failures that we're seeing now at a system level. To drive this home, can you give a sense for that terrifying impact that we'll
1: be facing? We've had a year of pandemic and environmental and economic calamities.
2: What else could we be facing down the road? Well, the truth is we don't need to take it any further already to be facing an existential threat. You know, In parts of the world now, millions of people are already experiencing the catastrophic effects, not just the wildfires, terrifying and destructive enough as those are, but millions of people, some of the poorest people in the world, are experiencing the impact of the uh, loss of of productivity and fertility of soils, of droughts and floods and consequential health impacts. And those people who are kind of out of of the line of sight for most of us, won't be out of our line of sight for very much longer. We've seen in Europe and the uh, United States has seen mass mobilization of people who are simply trying to survive. They won't sit by peacefully when their children are suffering and their livelihoods are destroyed. So there are some pretty... This is a global threat to all our well-being if we don't recognize that destroying the natural world and... and changing our climate to the extent that we already have and continuing to do so puts a very real meaning on the word existential.
1: As you've said, companies have been waking up to the reality of these crises. Can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing from corporate leaders who are
2: tackling this? You can't do business in a broken world. We're seeing lots of companies now creating and, being, and wanting to be seen to be creating long-term value for society and the environment, as well as for their uh, shareholders. You know, We recently published a report from a group of leading companies, including companies like IKEA and Unilever, who've really made great inroads into working out how to embed purpose, a sustainable purpose, into the core of their business. You know, we've spent a huge amount of our time over the last 30 years, in some senses, equipping leading companies to be ready for this moment when transformation is going to be added to incremental improvements. As you know, these crises take systems wide
1: change and contributions from every department in a company. Can you talk about the unique role that corporate boards can play in problem solving and addressing long term risks
2: and opportunities? I mean, this is an area we've been working in for a good number of years, the executives in a company sort of at the coalface and often recognise the need for change sometimes before the board does. So we've recognised that we Uh, have to help boards get up to speed in terms of the way they lead in terms of the response from the companies to some of these challenges but many boards have sort of assigned this to a subcommittee or a member of the board somebody who takes it as their responsibility to kind of know about sustainability if you like Uh, whereas I think what we're finding and what we're supporting is that boards as a whole need to understand the context in which they're doing business, what their impact is on society and the natural world and conversely, what impact the natural world will have on their business. And to to look at this in terms of how this relates to the company's very reason to exist. So we think it's hugely important for boards um, as a whole to have a really clear and well understood purpose and to use it as a guiding star of the business. You know, you uh, you can sit in board meetings and discover that the only thing that's ever talked about are financial measures. So we're arguing very strongly for a much more rounded take on financial and non-financial measures uh, in order for them to be properly embedded in the strategy and really importantly, to be rooted in evidence and show up in a really meaningful way in the way in which the business runs and, and in and reflected in their KPIs and in their remuneration policy. It's The good thing is that I think there's a growing awareness. I know the World Economic Forum report that um, I contributed to recently, which is really focusing on this as well. And as you started out at the very beginning, I think by saying that, you know, it's great to talk about all this stuff, but actually it has to be translated into action in a meaningful and proportionate way. And boards have a hugely important role to play. So I'm encouraged by the fact that we've seen so many companies coming to us and saying, "Okay, uh, help us. In your opinion, what could stand in the way of boards
1: taking on this new role of studying financial and non-financial metrics and taking the action that's really needed?
2: I think there are a number of things standing in the way. It's possible uh, that for some companies, they haven't really felt that they're on a burning platform. I think one of the other reasons why a change hasn't happened sufficiently is that these are really complex and interconnected problems. And very often, boards, and it also applies to executives, don't actually know what to do. These are system problems which don't lend themselves to being picked off one at a time. And so suddenly, boards are being asked to engage with a complex set of issues and sometimes knowing what to prioritise, who to listen to. These are difficult things to respond to. And again, a lot of the work that we are doing is trying to help them build that capacity to look at the complex system in a way that is manageable by creating the kind of frameworks that allow you to deal with this. So I would argue that some of the reasons we haven't moved forward is because it's difficult. I think, of course, we know that for some boards, it's simply inconvenient. If you're obsessed with short-term returns, it's very inconvenient to be asked to think about investments where the return will be longer term. Not all the companies that are out there now will survive the change that is going to be coming our way. And if you're one of those that can't change fast enough, and transform your business model, you can see why you might hang on to make as much money as you can till you go under, just to be honest about some of the evidence that we see out there.
1: Sure, sure. We've seen some progress already, and folks have been recognizing the importance of things like non-financial metrics, gauging how companies are addressing problems like pay gaps or environmental protection. If everyone embraces these changes, what difference could we see in 10 years? I mean, the reality is that
2: companies can only go so far without the right policy frameworks and governments can only go so far without the backing of, of the corporate sector. So, and of course, without the right level of financial investment, without mobilizing trillions of dollars into, these, into new ways of doing business, into new energy models, into, new, in, into the ways in which we meet our needs in a much, much more sustainable way the way we live, the way we travel, the way we eat, the way we communicate. But all of those things, those changes will need massive investment and that investment won't flow unless people can see the opportunities that come from it. So we need to create uh, sustainable markets. And I hope that by 2030, we will be past arguing about how long we can delay and well on the way to discovering that there are vast opportunities from doing the from getting it right, from doing things differently and getting it right. So for me it's an exciting time. I often talk to students here at Cambridge about how lucky they are to be at the beginning of a wholly new way of doing things in the world and the contribution that they can make, which is whether they are social anthropologists or engineers or uh, economists, they can, they can do things differently. You mentioned that hopefully we've gotten past the point of arguing.
1: Arguing can be a delay tactic for some people. In your mind, do you think that some
2: folks think that talking is action, that discussion is enough? One of the things which I've learned over the last 30 years is there's no good demanding people to do things and change and move without helping them. I think we have to recognize that this is not easy. Paul Polman from Unilever used to say, I've never met a chief executive who wants to des- destroy the world. You know, and I've worked with thousands of business leaders for the last 30 years, and I've never met one who wants to consciously wants to be destructive. They're parents and citizens too. I think that they are often trapped in a, in a, in a paradigm which they can't get out of. So I think that we have to. Uh, We have to recognise that this is going to require collective effort. It's going to require collaboration. It's going to require carrot and stick. So the stick isn't, there's nothing wrong with a bit of stick, but we also have to provide the carrot. We have to help and we have to make the outcome uh, one which allows companies, for example, to survive if possible. There's no good asking a chief executive to make change if it means that he'll be out of a job within three months. Uh, We have to help Drive the system change, which is why we work with whole groups of banks and insurance companies and companies who are worried about their uh, access to natural resources and companies who are trying to understand governance changes. It is true we have to challenge them, but we have to help them at the same time. How can leaders
1: make sure that they are steering companies away from just talk and move into real
2: action? Well, I think that they can ask questions of their own organisation and not be afraid of the answers. And I think they can regard evidence as a defining decision-making tool that they should have available to them. And not just the evidence that they that suits them, but the evidence that will have a bearing on the future of their business in years to come, if not tomorrow.
1: Davos agenda is just next week. Is there anything that you really hope that leaders will be discussing or
2: prioritizing? I'm sure they will reflect on what we have learned through the pandemic and reflect very deeply on what it's taught us about the fragility of the system, but I also hope that they will be reflecting on that the fact that this is just a foretaste of the shocks to come and that they will put real action plans in place. Not just agreeing sets of principles that they'll all sign up to, but actions that they would be measured against, that they're willing to be audited against, because this can't continue to be well-meaning resolutions that they all agree with the best of intentions that we should do it and then go away for another year. Each one of those meetings should be followed. And I know the World Economic Forum does a lot of follow through in terms of its reports and activities, but I'd like to see follow through, accountable follow through on the part of the people who've taken time out to talk about it, because they have the power and the influence like no other group on earth. So use it. As you've been working on these issues
1: and looking at the year ahead, is there a book that you recommend that people should read?
2: Something that's challenged you or given you hope? There's a book I'm reading right now, which is by one of my Cambridge colleagues, um, Dame Fiona Reynolds, uh, and it looks at the history of Britain's belief in the importance of landscape beauty and at the political and economic forces that have shaped the countryside. It's called The Fight for Beauty. And it talks about how the drive for economic growth is crowding out everything that can't be given a monetary value. And the idea of the book is to inspire us through the beauty of the world around us to do things differently. So I've been very moved by this book, because I suppose, right from my days growing up in South Africa, which is, in my view, one of the most beautiful places on earth, that sense of the beauty of the world around us, both human and natural, has been a real driving force in my life. So I've really enjoyed looking at the history of how we how we have arrived at this tussle between nature and the economy and if someone picked up that book, what do you think they would take from it? I would think that they would take from it that some of the problems we're dealing with now, some of the battles that we're having now are not new but the scale at which we are dealing with them is vastly, more significant and the risks are vastly greater if we don't recognize that we have to live in harmony with the natural world and that we have to understand the need for all people to to have a share of that beauty.
1: Yeah, definitely. I wanted to ask, as you've worked for decades to help raise the visibility of these issues with government and business leaders, that's incremental patient work. Is there a habit that you've depended on, something that you wouldn't have been able to do your work without?
2: Well, I suppose the habit I have is just never to give up. You know, I've grown an organization over 30 years which might not have been here if we'd given up when it got tough. I think, firstly, that habit is never to give up. And the second thing is... Never to stop looking for really new and innovative and game-changing ideas. What are the opportunities for radical transformation at speed and scale? And I think that's driven me for a very long time. And it's a habit that I don't want to give up.
1: When people hit a roadblock, it doesn't always look like throwing up your hands. Sometimes you blame others. Sometimes you get frustrated. What do you do when you hit a roadblock?
2: I think that what has helped me is to never lose sight of the bigger picture. Never lose sight of the amazing, wonderful possibility that we can do things better. And when I'm feeling a bit daunted, I keep telling myself to step up just a bit further because there's so much more we can do. In that effort, have you had anyone modeling that behavior, showing you the more positive way ahead? been lucky enough to have uh, His Royal Highness Prince of Wales as patron of the Institute for nearly 30 years now. And he has been an extraordinary support to our work, helping us, lending his convening power to many of the programmes and events. We run several programmes in his name, the Prince of Wales' Corporate Leaders Group and the Prince of Wales' Business and Sustainability Programme. I definitely learnt never giving up from him. I often tease him that he's a non-giving up kind of person. I learnt also to be fierce and passionate, which is what he is. I've seen how that carries you through in so many ways But more than that, actually, I think he is a unique individual on the world stage. He has been fighting this great fight, campaigning for over 40 years, often in the early days regarded as just simply slightly eccentric and somebody who talks to trees and plants. But in reality, he was way ahead of his time when he recognized that we have to rethink the way we live in the natural world and the way we engage with with one another. So he, he's been a personal and a professional inspiration to me and my colleagues. I have the most amazing 120 colleagues. We're, we're on a mission and I'm I'm just one of them because it's only together that we're going to do this stuff. No one's going to do it on their own. No one company, no one individual. This is about what we do together.
1: That was Polly Cordes. Before we go, please take a listen to what some top leaders hope discussions prioritize at next week's virtual sessions. Carmine DeSibio, EY's CEO and global chairman, explains that he'd like companies signing on to the ESG metrics, a set of non-financial metrics measuring how companies are doing well for society.
0: Well, I, I would love to see all our leaders, in particular the companies that are part of the International Business Council. Sign up to the metrics that we've been working on so much in the last, whatever, eight months. So uh, that's my number one ask in terms of the virtual meeting in January. I really do want all the companies to embrace long term value, to embrace stakeholder capitalism, you know, as we move forward.
1: And David Rubenstein, the co founder and co executive chairman of private equity firm The Carlisle Group. Hopes leaders discuss bridging gaps in health care and forging better global cooperation. As we go forward, how
2: we can prevent further pandemics, how we can, uh, of course, deal with the income inequality problems that have been exacerbated by COVID. And also last,
0: how can we make certain that there is greater um, cooperation between
2: countries that are at times fighting with each other? And that's what statesmanship is all about, is trying to reduce war and reduce hunger and famine and and death by
1: military kinds of means, and that's an ongoing problem. And finally, Eric Rondelat, CEO of Signify, a lighting system services and software company, asked for more best practices and inspiration.
0: Could Davos, could it be at one stage just a repository of great references or good practices or great examples that people could see? That would help them to be inspired and to realize that, oh, it's maybe possible also in their own domains. um, Davos could have also that virtue at one stage, which is to inspire on execution and implementation.
1: Don't forget, Davos Agenda Week starts next week, Monday, January 25th. My colleague Robin Pomeroy will be running daily podcasts that you won't want to miss. Here's a preview of Radio Davos. It's
0: January. So it must be davos 2021 will be a pivotal year for the future of humankind it's davos but not as we know it after a year when the world was turned upside down by the coronavirus pandemic this january davos where the leaders from government business academia and society meet to discuss the world's biggest issues will be virtual. At IKEA, we think this is the most important decade in the history of humankind. The Davos agenda is happening over five days from Monday, January the 25th. Join me, Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum, and a variety of co-hosts from media around the world each morning on Radio Davos, as we look ahead to the action where leaders will look at how we can see off the pandemic.
2: Vaccinating just a few countries isn't going to put an end to the pandemic. In 2021, what we think is a real priority for all leaders across all countries is to ensure a people's vaccine.
0: How the global economy can recover and become fairer and more sustainable.
2: In the last crisis, we missed the chance to modernise our economy. In fact, we did absolutely the opposite.
0: And finally, act on climate change. Just this last year, 2020, there was a record 29 tropical storms in the Atlantic. Meteorologists ran out of alphabet letters to name them. Seven of those storms that landed were over $1 billion events. Every day, Radio Davos will give you a flavor of what to expect and include an interview with some of the people making big change happen. It will be a rare company whose pre-crisis strategy remains optimal. The Davos Agenda will look at other big issues, such as racial inequality.
2: There have been only 15 black CEOs in the Fortune 500 in the last 62 years.
0: And we'll hit from leading artists on why things like photography and architecture are crucial to us as a species. The use of buildings as kind of monuments or anti-monuments has been really powerful. The Davos Agenda is happening at a moment of big political change. Joe is a good listener, and he really wants to bring the country together. Follow it all on Radio Davos on the website wf.ch Davos Agenda from January the 25th, and download it as a podcast on our Great Reset feed. Just search Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Franklin Roosevelt didn't have everybody behind him, and Joe won't either. But I think he can have enough to begin to move forward. From the World Economic Forum, covering the Davos Agenda Week from January the 25th, This is Radio Davos.
1: That was Robin Pomeroy with a sneak preview of Radio Davos, the daily Davos Agenda Week podcast. To see and hear much more of Davos Agenda Week starting next Monday, go online to wef.ch slash Davos Agenda. My thanks go out to Robin Pomeroy, Gareth Nolan, and Anna Bruce Lockhart for all of their help with the production of this episode. Thanks also to this week's guest, Polly Cordes, and thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts, and for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to web.ch slash podcast. And follow us online on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and Twitter using the handle W-E-F. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.